0: Hello and welcome to Everything Considered. My name is Gautam.
1: And my name is Samson.
0: And today we uh, talk about anatomy. And from there, we're going to go into uh, embryology, evolution, um, if humans really have free will, and and go on to talk about our our structure of of society in this day and age and uh, dystopia.
1: Yeah, it seems disconnected, but but just try try to stay with us. It it might come together. It might not. We'll see what happens.
0: All right, Samson, uh, let's talk about anatomy. Tell me more. I wanted to talk a little bit about something that I observed in anatomy last year. Um, and so we, we both have theoretically covered all of anatomy uh, within our first year of med school. And There was one really interesting thing that i i I observed and i'm sure it's been studied before but i kind of wanted to bounce it off of you so have you i'm sure you've noticed the human body is very very symmetrical right so we have two arms we have two legs so having two arms uh having two legs really helps with um, mobility um having two arms lets us interact with multiple things or grab things grab branches uh, whatever it may be um and then even if you look at more um, I guess, uh, smaller things like our eyes, we have two eyes, we have two nostrils. Um, and all of the, the, the fact that we have two of all of these things uh, serves a, a certain purpose. One thing that I thought was really interesting, so this is, I guess, bilateral symmetry on, on both sides. But one thing I observed is to me, it seems like we also have symmetry between the top half of our body and the bottom half of our body. And the thing that really led me to this idea was our shoulder blades and our hip bones. They're both flat bones that uh, stabilize the respective ball joint. So our shoulder blade, scapula, um, <laughs> I said scapula as though it's someone's name, um, <laughs> our shoulder blades stabilize our um Uh, our shoulder ball joint and then our hip bones and the hip bone I guess uh, as um, one uh, unified structure supports both of our leg joints so they are they are very unique bones in that we don't have those sorts of bones anywhere else in our body and so I started thinking about this a little more and so our hip bones are similar to our shoulder bones our knee is pretty similar to our elbow um and you know we have like a, a ulnar collateral ligament um and all these different ligaments within our elbow which are similar to you know ACL PCL etc in your knee um and granted this is this is likely uh, born of the fact that we have evolved from uh, great apes who who were uh accustomed to traveling on four legs as opposed to just two and over time we have uh, I guess taken advantage of mobility on just two legs, and so now our upper limbs have been become more specialized to um, to other tasks other than mobility. So I wanted to to hear your thoughts on this, uh, not the bilateral symmetry, but rather the 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 top half and bottom half symmetry.
1: Hmm. And what is your question about that?
0: I guess I I don't really have a question, but it seems like uh, just every single structure in the top half of the body has an not only an analogous structure, but an extremely, extremely similar structure, both in terms of how they move and their function. Um, And and we can see this with like our forearm muscles uh, are very similar to our uh, our lower leg muscles. Um, And then, you know, we have two bones in the forearm, right? The uh, radius and the ulna, and we also have two bones in in the the lower leg. We have the the tibia and the fibula. Um, so I, I was kind of curious to hear what your thoughts are on. So we have the symmetry, you know, left and right. But I I guess I guess what this led me to think was okay. So. All of these four-legged animals that that are mobile on four legs, um, they do not have as much specialization of the of the the front limbs as they do of of the hind limbs, like we do. Um, and so their uh, forelegs are going to be much more similar to their hind legs, both in terms of the 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 hip, I guess, of of their uh, forelegs. So uh, whatever's sort of I haven't looked into this, but. Their shoulder structure um, and their hip structure for their hind legs are probably are probably more similar. Um, and then you know if we look at the spine as well, like we have a, a, a cervical spine and a, a sacral spine, and we have you know specialized sensory structures. So you have like the genitals at at one end, and then you have you know the lips and the face and other specialized uh, uh, sensory structures at the other end. So I don't know. It, it just seemed really curious to me that that we have this very strong Upper body and lower body symmetry, which which could mean like this this probably is there's probably some homology and structure going like way way far back to the point where uh, we we had evolved from creatures that were not only bilateral bilaterally perfectly symmetrical but also uh, symmetrical top and bottom.
1: Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Is the is the symmetry you're talking about here this top bottom symmetry? Is that primarily? Upper extremity versus lower extremity, and then a little bit of this other sensory stuff that you're comparing.
0: Right. So, so that's initially um, how I was looking at it. So, yeah, shoulder blades and hip bones, and then as you said, upper extremity. So all of the bones in our arm, the muscles in our arm, uh, like your biceps uh, and and your hamstrings and, and that sort of thing, all the way down to your wrists and your ankle bones. You know, those are very similar. Um, so th- that's part of it. And I was thinking in in terms of our trunk. Um, the the things within our trunk are uh, they I guess I guess there's no definitive line in which there's an upper uh, symmetry and lower symmetry, but it's more so that I feel like that the our, our, the things inside our gut specialized kind of uh, not totally unrelated to the rest of our body, but specialized in a way that the rest of our body didn't specialize. So it seems like the rest of our body specialized. In terms of we're adapting to how we move and interact with the world around us while our internal organs adapted to uh, the stresses we're placing on it. So we need to be able to go without food for a certain period of time. We need to be able to digest our food so well. We need to have a you know a, a heart that's pumping blood to the rest of our body sufficiently. And so that kind of thing is, is not very symmetric, but more of like specialized organs that were created to, to support this uh, interesting being around it. But yeah, I, I was primarily thinking from a musculoskeletal standpoint.
1: Mm, I see, I see. It, uh, that's interesting you brought that up because Last week, I was dog-sitting my brother's new dog, and Mm -hmm. uh, the dog has some urinary incontinence problems right now because it's it's an older female dog, Mm -hmm. and uh, right now, the dog is getting some medication, but uh, my brother is, is putting on a diaper temporarily Mm -hmm. so it's pretty funny to to see him put a diaper on the small dog because the dog very much just seems like like a small human Mm -hmm. right now just walking around or kind of like a superhero i i feel like it's one (laughs) of those two options (laughs) because the the diaper looks more like underwear rather than like a diaper diaper so i feel like (laughs) you can either double down and put a cape on the dog or just let it walk around as if it was a uh uh like a little little toddler um, yeah
0: I mean it's already crawling around on four legs, looks like a toddler, but maybe it's just ready for Halloween <laughs> yeah
1: exactly exactly but but i I was listening to a conversation that uh he was having with his fiance about some things uh with like putting on the diaper and practicing some different commands like shake hand and things like that that he's trying to teach the dog mm-hmm. and then the my brother's fiance had mentioned something about four legs. Because my brother had mentioned his arms and his legs, Hmm. Uh, which is interesting because he made a comment where he feels that the the upper extremity is definitely different from the lower extremity because the upper extremity has more of an elbow like quality in terms of the extension and flexion that's happening there compared to the uh, the lower extremities, which have this sort of hind leg. Uh, appearance that that make them seem very distinct which Mm -hmm. then made me think of oh okay i I guess in the past i always thought of a dog as having four legs but Mm -hmm. then now that i'm looking at this dog and seeing the ways that the bones uh are bending and and flexing and extensing uh it it actually does seem fairly distinct it Mm -hmm. it, probably closer to our anatomy than i initially was thinking but um yeah, yeah, go ahead.
0: So I I think the kind of what you're touching on there is like the, the dog's hind legs are, um, I mean, it's honestly a, a little bit like a car where you have most of the power in a rear-wheel drive car going to the, the back wheels or the back legs. And even in humans, right, our our gluteus maximus and our hamstrings and uh, our quadriceps; those are like the biggest, strongest muscles in our body that allow for us to to run and everything. And that's that's true for dogs as well, where their their uh, rear muscles, uh, their hind leg muscles, are much stronger and allow for more propulsion. But anyway, continue.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, so definitely agree with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing that that I was thinking of when you were bringing up this topic of top versus bottom symmetry is also the proportionality of our body and our bones and our different structures within the body. Because I think, I think I remember reading something that had a list of, of these different proportions in terms of uh, like the tibia is, is this many ulnas and the um, femur is this many, uh, you know, Tibia, sorry. Right. Uh, uh, But was just comparing the different uh, lengths of different parts of Rebody to see what things matched up. Mm -hmm. And I I think one thing that I thought was interesting that I remember is I there was a comment that was comparing the forearm to the foot. And Hmm. I never thought about that. But then I I took out... (laughs) I didn't take out my foot. I looked at my foot. (laughs) And then I put my forearm next to it. I'm doing it right now again. And then I was kind of surprised because... My forearm, going from my elbow to my wrist, is almost exactly the size of my foot. Have, have you ever...
0: Elbow to your wrist?
1: My elbow to my wrist, yeah.
0: Interesting. I, I never thought about that.
1: Hey, uh, check that real quick with you. With, with yeah, your I mean,
0: foot. I'm, I'm looking at my... Fore, I think my forearm... So we are both very similarly sized humans, right? And I think right. my my foot is about one foot long and my forearm is just over a foot long, maybe like 15 inches or something.
1: Right, right. Oh, oh. so your forearm is longer than your foot.
0: I think so. I mean, you know, that's why they call me long-armed. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I guess there is definitely a lot of variation in that kind of thing. But, but just that proportionality between different parts of your body, I think was something that I was thinking about Mm -hmm. when you were mentioning the symmetry but one thing that i will comment on is i think before studying anatomy and and looking into biology and having a more simplistic model of how the body developed i thought there was actually more symmetry than there there actually is in the Mm. sense that uh you know before thinking about the body i know there are two lungs and they're Mm. like okay those two lungs are symmetrical right and then we go into anatomy. Like, nope, that is not the case. <laughs> the The right lung has three lobes. The left lo- lobe has two lobes. The left lobe has a lingula and has this space cut out from it, uh, so mm-hmm. you have room for the for the heart. Mm-hmm. Also, I always, for some reason, uh, I, I I think partially because of the um, the conventional cartoonish figure we have of a heart, where it's just these two kind of crusts put together and mm-hmm. having that always being in the middle of the chest. I think I subconsciously subconsciously thought of the heart as also being something that's symmetric and right in the middle of your chest. Even though obviously if I put my hand on my chest, I can feel that it beats louder on one side than another. But right. um, I, I think, you know, going into anatomy lab and dissecting a cadaver and pulling out a heart and seeing this, very intricate structures that are not very symmetric inside the body once you peel off the skin and actually go underneath the ribs i thought that was really interesting because um yeah i i I mean we we talk about today we were talking about what bronchiectasis Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. uh what what is the common cause of bronchiectasis aspergillus (laughs) (laughs) that's that's not what i was going to refer to <laughs> I, I was talking about Kartagener syndrome, right? Cuz one right, right. one symptom of Kartagener syndrome is because of the uh mutation in the dynein arm for the cilia, mm-hmm. you have situs inversus, which is where everything on one side of you basically have a flipped uh representation of where the organs are in your body. So instead of your heart being on the left side, your heart is on the right side and instead of your right lung having three lobes your left lung has three lobes so you're just a
0: mirror image of a real person
1: yeah pretty much pretty much and then just just thinking about uh those those differences i mean uh so so i mentioned the lungs i mentioned the um uh the heart but then looking at the at the different sides of your uh, abdominal cavity right i mean Mm -hmm. completely different functions there aside from the kidneys which are symmetric Mm -hmm. uh you have liver on the right completely different from what the spleen does on the left right and then you know you do have some symmetry with you know your intestines but then you also have an appendix on one side and not in the other and you know the, the then moving moving further up in your body you know you look at the brain initially you think the brain is, is something that seems very symmetric but mm-hmm. then in reality uh it's not like uh, the divisions that you're making in terms of the different functional areas of the brain are equally allocated to the left and the right side. You know, they're, they're mm-hmm. very specialized to, uh, you know, the left angular gyrus is doing these specific things. The uh, Broca's area, Wernicke's area, that's specific to one side, usually the left side. And then there's something else happening on that equivalent place on the, on the right side. And mm-hmm. uh, seeing this, difference in what what appears like it would something that would be symmetric but in reality completely asymmetric as Mm -hmm. as we see in an example for something like a uh in a patient who has a severed corpus callosum where the left brain and the right brain can't communicate and they have these two very different personalities that don't really know what the other half of themselves is thinking Mm -hmm. you know in in that case we we see more of a an asymmetry that is deeper within an uh, an appearance of symmetry
0: right interestingly enough the the corpus like uh, severing the corpus callosum used to be a treatment for seizures did you know that
1: i'd imagine i feel like their way about dealing with seizures back then was like <laughs> let's just cut out some part of the brain and see what happens because <laughs> i feel like right. they did the same <laughs> thing with the amygdala they feel they did the same thing with the hippocampus and there's always like some weird thing that happens because of that you know. Of course.
0: No, yeah. Lobotomies were logical at one point in time. So I'm thankful <laughs> that, that we've come far since then. Definitely. definitely. Uh, so all, all these uh, visceral organs that, that you're mentioning, like, you know, the liver's on one side and everything, it, it kind of, it, it makes me want to think more about the embryology of this. So a lot of, so we start off as, you know, one cell, two cells, a cluster of cells, et cetera, et cetera. And a lot of these organs, like the way, especially our visceral organs, the way that they're organized within us have to do with You know they originated at some part in the uh, I don't want to say primordial embryo because that sounds like we're talking about before the dark ages, but uh, in the in the Mm -hmm. early embryo they originate in a certain place and then they move to to another place. You know, and I think uh, a good example of this I believe is your is your thyroid right, which starts off actually higher up in your mouth and then descends down uh, towards where it is um, in your like mid trachea, Um, and you know there are there are some issues with uh development that can arise where you know you don't you have an undescended uh thyroid gland or something like that but Mm -hmm. uh a lot of things like you know the liver the pancreas um if, if if i'm not incorrect and correct me if i'm wrong uh they start off more midline and then they migrate outwards, right? And they, they descend, they ascend, they do all of these things. Um, and so it seems to me that the, the earlier on in the embryological stage we are, the more internally symmetrical we would be. And then as we develop, you know, past nine weeks, past uh, 12 weeks, uh, that's when you start seeing more, uh, I guess, specialization in, in one sense, but also migration to the, the final destination for a lot of these organs. Is that right?
1: yeah yeah I, I think you're right I think you're right uh, if I knew you were going to ask me about embryology I would have tried to brush up on some of this stuff <laughs> but um but but yeah I think generally uh, what what you're saying is true
0: and I mean I think if we if we go down to the to the the very very origin of it where you are just actually two or three cells uh, like you you are a blastocyst uh, so to speak, you are actually extremely symmetrical because, because totally, all of your totally. cells are essentially the same. And so, so that's kind of interesting because I know that uh, the human embryo has often been uh, described as homologous to other organisms. You know, it's like you start off as more of a reptilian creature. You have webbing in your fingers, et cetera, et cetera. And that that leads me to believe, like, okay, if we, by studying embryology, we can actually get a, at least a theoretical understanding of um, evolution, you know, and a theoretical understanding of what is the more simplified form of our complex organism, and I'm sure that, you know, if, if we start off with single-celled organisms and multi, uh, multi-celled organisms, or even single-celled multinucleated, I, I'm not really sure, um, or single-celled with cells inside, if, if you want to deal with the mitochondria, when we started off as those organisms and then, you know, d- divided uh, into into organisms with more cells and more specialization and more ability to interact and uh, survive in the, the weird uh, volcanic world around it, I feel like we... S- in evolutionarily we started off very symmetrical and then over time uh, all of the organisms you know fish are not that symmetrical uh, worms are maybe a little more symmetrical and then giraffes are not that symmetrical um, but maybe spiders are more symmetrical um it, it seems like that's that's kind of a good um uh, the the there's some uh analogy between embryology and evolution
1: yeah that's so interesting i I thought I had this exact same dot Uh, In high school, actually, when we were learning about this, specifically when we were going over some general embryology and there were some references to how it seems like we have some uh, vestigial elements of what looks like a gill in one part of the development, which looks just the same as a fish embryo for Mm -hmm. a certain period of time during embryonic development. And it made me think that, you know, it took millions of years to get from a single celled organism to the complexity that is a human being. Mm-hmm. But it seems like in in some way, um you are kind of going through that those million years of evolution in this very accelerated period of nine months. Right. Where where you're you're making all of these individual steps of starting as a single cell, becoming multicellular, uh having the you know, primitive gill of a fish and then developing limbs and then doing all of these sophisticated and uh, fancy embryological maneuvers to then uh, end up with this end product that is this many million years uh, down in the evolutionary tree, which mm-hmm. I think is, is kind of fascinating too. Uh, it, it's almost as if you're transported back in time and then fast forwarded through a few million years within nine months. Right, it's like we get to experience evolution
0: very very viscerally at, at the very earliest stages of our life before we even know what evolution is.
1: <laughs> right, right. I think the the use of the word viscerally is is very true in this context <laughs> with visceral organs, but well done. Well done.
0: Man, yeah, I didn't even think about that, but yeah, it's 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 cool that you know, you, you see this similarity between humans and fish, right? Because so often we think, oh yeah, I'm so different from fish. Um, you know, fish, they just, they're kind of dumb and they just swim around and, uh, they're, they're pretty simple machines. Uh, and they, they don't engage in as much complex thought and maybe like building societies and stuff like we do, which I'm sure that they actually do build societies and stuff. I'm saying that a little bit facetiously. Um, but, I, I think that a lot of this, while I was thinking about what you were saying, it, it kind of makes me think, you know, we're not actually that different from fish. Like, granted, we don't swim around and we can't breathe underwater. We don't. That's a superpower for some people. We don't, we don't have that superpower. Um, but I, I feel like the the fact that we think of ourselves as so disparate from uh, fish or any other being or even disparate from the great apes, you know, from from chimpanzees and, and orangutans and, and all those guys. Um, and girls we, we kind of do ourselves uh, a disservice in in that I feel like in order to understand our own biology better we, we have to kind of stop thinking of ourselves as so different from these other animals
1: yeah yeah that's interesting that's interesting I think sometimes we make the separation between you know human beings and animals I think based on a uh, a foundational principle of maybe like self-reflection and abstract thinking mm-hmm. that that seems different from the instinctual things that maybe an animal might do in response mm-hmm. to to a stimulus but but there are definitely a lot of elements in a human experience that just seems like a response to a stimulus and i feel like in certain ways humans are equally ignorant in terms of the uh, complexities of what is happening on a biological level uh, compared to let's say a squirrel or a fish and and what I mean by that is like what when when we learn about embryology when we when we go through these different phases of embryonic development it's pretty amazing the uh, the the lengths to which the maneuvers the 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 body makes to go from the single cell to this, very specialized and sophisticated end product that really requires a lot of very uh, specific things to go correctly and a lot of a lot of sophisticated maneuvers that have to go correctly i mean Mm -hmm. i remember looking at the um, embryonic development of the gi system and there is this very complicated uh kind of sequence of events that happens with uh the gi tract kind of looping it's around on itself and then twisting mm-hmm. and then part of it coming out of the navel and then coming back inside the navel and doing all this fancy work there just to get the, the setup that, that we take for granted right now here. But the, I feel like there's an element where, you know, right now we are in med school. We are studying these things, embryologic, uh, the embryologic development. We're studying the anatomy. We're studying the biology, but in a certain, strangely uh, intrinsic and inherent way, our body already knows all of these things right? right it already it already did all these things and now this uh seemingly higher transcendent consciousness is trying to figure out what our uh more quote unquote primitive body already figured out and was able to do successfully and that that's the same case with with the fish or or a dog right in the sense that the the dog's fundamental biology of, of how these cells are interacting during embryonic development, that is all being coordinated in a very similarly sophisticated way and, uh, goes through so that you get this, you start from this, uh, very primitive, uh, single cellular, uh, organism that then proliferates into something that is much more sophisticated. And, uh, is is able to have all of these analogs to uh, a human's uh, anatomy and physiology. Uh, it seems like the only real difference is a dog isn't wondering how its heart is pumping based on a response to epinephrine, and uh, <laughs> where, where, whereas we're trying to figure that out. Because it right. seems like the dog has just accepted that, you know, I don't need to know this stuff <laughs> because I already know this stuff. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You know? I,
0: I think I was looking at that more of, uh, I guess, in relation to something that that you that you said earlier, where it was like every like these organisms are ignorant to their own complexity. Right. So maybe, uh, you know, the dog is uh, the dog is fairly complex, you know, as as a we, we you know, Boston Dynamics has just come up with the first robotic dog and it's still not as insanely amazing as real dogs are you know we have bloodhounds we have uh we have dogs that function in human society we're able to train them to do so many things they function by themselves wolves function by themselves in such uh, interesting complex ways and maybe they function to a level you know and they probably function to a much more complex level than they themselves realize and i think that's exactly true with humans as well we do so many things and our brain and our body work in so many ways that we are still ignorant to, and you know that's the, the field of of medical research. Um, I guess as medical students, we are even more ignorant to those things because we we don't know them yet, and the the general public probably knows even less about you know human anatomy, human physiology. Yet the body still you know serves them in that way, and I I think that's so so interesting that you framed it in that way because. It seems like every organism, if you if you look through evolution, the the organism's uh, ability to perceive its own complexity, to perceive its own, um, uh, the I guess perceive all of the different things that it is doing without it even knowing. I think that's always one step ahead, you know, where they they can't perceive what all the all the different things going on is. And then, you know, they go to the, the next level where maybe, you know, in the next evolution of humans, which I don't know if that's ever going to happen, but maybe they have sensation of like neurotransmitters and they can feel when, uh, you know, acetylcholine goes and works at a neuromuscular junction or, or something like that. But right. then they might be ignorant to... I don't know the, the pre-ganglionic to the post-ganglionic. Uh, I, I'm just saying that because <laughs> that's what we spoke about today. Um, right. But that that's so interesting. I I guess I guess my my thought from that is if if every organism is is, is kind of in that same way, you know, uh, uh, there is some abstraction in how they think that they can't even um, appreciate. Yet they're all uh, simple in in some way. You know, they're all kind of um, uh, I, I don't know, I've always thought about brains as kind of input-output machines, you know, where it's like for, there, there are some organisms, if you look at the, the most basic of organisms, uh, like organisms that are attracted to certain um you know where you put them in a dish and they will they will follow the thing even our our, our white blood cells they can follow a um, uh, some sort of antagonistic organism around a dish like a bacteria or something like that um, those are very very well we see them as very very rudimentary organisms they smell this chemoattractant um, and then they follow it around until they eat it and then there's no more chemoattractant to fall and then you know uh, that there there's the end of that and i guess those those cells work the same way in our body where um, there is a, a chemoattractant trail to the the site of infection that white blood cells can follow and then extravasate through the through the cell um, through the blood vessel wall and then go and uh, attack the foreign invaders but I think our brain also kind of works in the same way so if I guess you get one step more um, complex than than cells and you go to like multicellular organisms and uh, very similar very um, simple uh, organisms with many organs um, you can scare fish, uh, by, you know, moving around in a, in a certain place, uh, in water, you can, you can scare a dog, you can scare an animal. Um, humans are, it's maybe a little harder to scare them, but I feel like it's just, uh, how those thoughts and those stimuli are integrated in the brain. I think at the end of the day, the brain is still just an input output machine. It's just that there are so many other things that we are taking into account, which dogs and fish might do much more quickly. So, Let's say you um, uh, open my my door right now. I know you're not here, but let's say we were living in the same apartment and you open the door right now and tried to scare me. Uh, there there are certain sensory things that I will immediately pick up on, like oh maybe I saw a light outside, maybe I heard footsteps. I I hear the door open, but I'm still going to be you know very quickly surprised. Um, it's likely that a simpler organism would be more quickly surprised because they have a, a stronger fight or flight response. They they are still evolutionarily living in an environment where they are not perpetually safe like like we are now but i think if you look at other decisions that we make for example what i ate for breakfast today right um there are so many factors that go into that but i think at the end of the day it's a very logical input output machine and these you know these are millions of factors like what time i woke up in the morning probably determines what i'm craving that morning obviously what my mom made what my mom made and perhaps what drove my mom to make that thing. Uh, Other things that I'm craving that day, maybe I haven't had fruits in days and my body's like craving fruits. Um, Maybe I smelt something in the morning or maybe I watched a a video or read a news article on something that mentioned a certain food. And so I'm craving that thing. At the end of the day, there were all those different uh, complex inputs that were uh, integrated in my brain, pretty unbeknownst to me, and then the output is me and going uh, and choosing a certain food, which is seemingly a, a pretty simple output. But I don't know. What, what do you think about that? Like, the you know, the brain being an input-output machine and then, you know, humans in general being a little bit ignorant to our own uh, divine complexity, if I may.
1: Yeah. So when, when you make this reference, the first thing that I'm thinking about that that it seems like what you're alluding to is this idea of free will, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like if we are just an input output machine, we take in an input and then we will predictably produce an output. Where does free will factor into that uh, kind of system? Right. Mm-hmm. And what I'm reminded of when you mentioned something like that is a- an episode of Radiolab called loops. Mm-hmm. And in one segment of that, they play a recording from uh, a patient who has short-term memory loss and uh, th- this happened acutely. So so a person uh, had their normal sense of memory and then all of a sudden they had this, uh, this short-term memory loss where their memory would reset probably every 60 to 90 seconds. Hmm. But then in this recording, it, w- it was so interesting because the uh the daughter w- would come into the hospital room and she was recording this and she would tell the uh tell the mother that oh you know you're in the hospital right now you've you're you have this short-term memory loss uh that there might have been an incident that caused it she might have f- fallen or something like that before this i'm, I'm forgetting the exact details mm-hmm. but then in the response that you get from the mother Uh, the mother responds with this very genuine uh, surprise and concern and asks these questions about what had happened. Mm -hmm. But then uh, in 90 seconds, she just resets completely Mm -hmm. and then has the same seemingly genuine wonder about what just happened and concern. But then word for word is repeating the same thing over and over again and feels as though if this person is stuck in a loop the if the, uh, if the uh, daughter keeps prompting her with the, with the same stimulus of, of the of the updating the, the mother on what had happened and, and what the situation was. And then with something like that where it, it was such a almost eerie thing to listen to because f- like five, six times, regardless of of, of of the time in which this is repeated, the this exact same, way the exact same inflection the exact same choice of words the exact same cadence was produced by this mother Mm -hmm. and of course from the mother's end she has a perception in the moment that what she is saying is something that is completely her free will where where she's processing what has been being said to her and then thinking about what to say and then saying it after that but Seeing it from an outside perspective where you can clearly see that it is very, very predictable what she's about to say next Mm -hmm. then makes you wonder about, you know, how much free will do we have in certain situations like this where it seems very much like the brain is an input-output machine Mm -hmm. and what happens in the middle is not really, is already predetermined in, in some way.
0: Right. I mean, the when you when you describe this, I'm just thinking like you know she's Groundhog Daying, right? Every single day is exactly the same. And if you think about the Groundhog Day movie itself, or any other uh, you know movies that take this concept of Groundhog Day, um, if the if that person did the same thing every single day, everything around them would happen the same exact way. And the only way they change that is because they are conscious that they are groundhog daying. They change what they do and and therefore the, the things around them change. But I I mean what this person is doing um in the 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 patient you're talking about seems totally normal. Like that's that's what we would do because whenever we have a certain input, whatever it may be, we can almost, you know, consciously predict what what our output is going to be. If we, uh, even if it's not something reactionary, like you know, stepping on a pin or something. Like, uh, let's say my alarm goes off, uh, and and I look at it and I see it says like, "Oh, take your vitamins." I'm going to go reach over and take my vitamins, and I, that's kind of a, a distillation of of a complex uh, idea into a very simple thing, where it's like I have literally put a reminder for myself to to do this thing. But if you take a more complex example, like. My friends are, are calling me to, to go out to uh, bowling or something. Uh, Samson is saying, you know, we have to go bowling. We haven't gone in so long. Maybe like every three times that I don't go with you guys, it reaches this critical mass where I decide, okay, yes, I should go. Um, but my brain is acting very, very logically, and it's responding to that situation. And for that lady, if the input is exactly the same... Of course, the output is because the output is going to be exactly what it was the first time because that is the most logical process that um, that her, her brain has decided this is the most logical what we should what we should output. And the, that leads me to think the only way to kind of get out of that loop or to say something different is every time we make a decision, we train ourselves to really analyze the things and then make a spontaneous choice and when i say spontaneous i mean specifically a choice that is not uh based on anything like we actually have to uh, roll a die or something like that so let's say um i'm going to step out of my room after this recording I should make a choice. Am I going to open the door with my left hand or my right hand, you know? And uh, when I go down the stairs, am I going to start by uh, placing my left foot on the stair first or the right foot? And that's definitely going to make me trip and fall down the stairs. But unless we think about every single decision like that, we, we are like essentially like her, we will sound um, pre-recorded and, and we're not, um, we, we like to think of ourselves as having free will um, but that kind of leads th- to the question, like, what exactly is free will? Like, free will is us being able to do exactly what we want without the um, sole input of of outside sources determining what we're going to do. Um, and to me, it seems like we are always uh, kind of an amalgamation of, all of these different inputs over time and our own integration of those inputs, our memories, things that other people have told us about the world, all of these things play into every single one of our actions. And 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 therefore, if you think about it, maybe... The, the extent of free will that we have is able, like the ability to execute conscious judgment on every single thing we make. But at the end of the day, that conscious judgment is determined by all of these inputs we have.
1: Right, right. Yeah. It, 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 it's a tricky, tricky thing to think about.
0: Man, I, I think that's so crazy that we... Um, you know, we we think of ourselves as you know very different from from other organisms and stuff. Um, but at the end of the day, this this patient is showing us that you know, uh, that 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 response with concern and, and you know genuine curiosity. What happened? Because she literally does not know. Uh, you you can't really spin that in any. That's that's that is very genuine, you know, and it does give some very interesting insights to to the human brain there's a, a funny quote which I think is a, a spinoff of um, something Shakespeare wrote where it's like the. Uh, he, I think what Shakespeare originally said was uh, as the eye cannot see itself it can only observe itself in a mirror um, but I remember I don't know if it was a comedian or what but someone was saying I guess at the expense of um, neurobiology <laughs> it was as the eye cannot see itself, the br- the, the brain cannot study itself. <laughs> so it was like, yeah, someone didn't want to study uh neuroscience. Nice, nice, nice. But,
1: uh, th- that does make me wonder though, um, did you have any moments that come to mind when you're thinking about uh, potential loops in your own life or something that you've experienced in your interactions or your family or friends' interactions where you feel this deja vu moment uh given some external stimulus and then seeing the uh a predictive response from either yourself or from from someone that you were interacting with
0: hmm i'm what, what's coming to mind right now is sometimes when we're on vacation or something days kind of just become cyclical you know where i eat the same thing and then same people are around me and the same essentially the same thing happens day in and day out unless I go out of my way to do something differently I, I can't put my finger on any deja vu moment in particular I know one thing that has happened in the past is I've had uh, conversations with two different people who are very similar but they don't know each other and hmm. in that conversation I will say you know we w- maybe we have a similar belief system or something like that but what will essentially happen is, I will present to them a, a question or something that I had already asked the other person and their response will be very, very similar to that. And it, I don't know, it's kind, of, it's kind of interesting now to think about like, you know, maybe their upbringing was similar, the influences they've had on their life, their education is similar, the kind of neighborhood they etc., et cetera, et cetera. But I mean, that's a question of socialization being, being similar and Therefore, I guess also we could study in the context of free will. But uh, no real deja vu moments. Um, <laughs> how about you?
1: Interesting. I, I feel like if, if you think about it more, there might be some more instances of these loops. Because mm-hmm. uh, recently, there, there was uh, a few weeks ago, my brother had found these old tapes of, of family videos. And he had went and converted them. Uh, into digital and we were watching them and uh, it was really interesting because these were years in my life that I had no memory of because you know it's between age two and age four Mm -hmm. but uh, it was so interesting to to see this part of uh, my past and my family's past and then to to see my mother there to see my brother and to see these interactions that were happening there and there was this one uh, kind of comical moment where me or my brother, we, we do something uh, like one of us pushes the other uh, in a in a sort of funny way, mm-hmm. and then m- my mom, uh, while watching the video, says like, "Oh, naughty boys," <laughs> and and then literally like one second later, the the video uh, of this recording has my mom saying in the exact same inflection naughty (laughs) boys and that was hilarious because it it was in a very similar way this predictable loop that had happened with what when this same stimulus of these you know silly three-year-olds uh messing around with each other the the mother had the same response to those interactions and i don't know that was just something that was uh that was comical for me where i think i've noticed in um in videos from the past, when I, when I see and experience a stimulus that has been captured by this video, uh, before I I see what actually played out in the past,
0: mm-hmm. there's
1: something that I think in the moment or that I say in the moment that then is concordant with what actually happened in that moment in the past, you know, and I I think that's been something that uh, I feel like is is one slightly more macro instance of uh of a a looping effect like we've talked about but but what when i discuss that it it makes me think of an even more macro um level of of looping in the context of history where where you know there is the uh the quote that like what is it um like, like history, if you're not aware itself? of your history, you're bound to repeat itself. History is bound to repeat itself. Yeah, so right, something right. along those lines. Mm-hmm. And and then then if we think of of like the human race as this monolith that doesn't have free will, mm-hmm. and then is prone to uh, these loops in which uh, you go into a cyclical pattern of of responding to a stimulus, reacting to a stimulus, having. Um, having a revolution having a reactionary aspect to that revolution having uh years of some kind of response to that having polarization and then unity and polarization wars things like that mm-hmm. i feel like there there is some element of, of that kind of loop that happens uh from a historical perspective
0: interesting i so both of those things that, that you bring up lead, lead me to some interesting thoughts like one with your with your mother having that same reaction uh, to to the video that she had, you know, uh, decades ago. I I find that there are a lot of things that I have essentially trained myself to have the same reaction to every time and you will have noticed this when when we when we talk to each other if uh, you ask me a question and I I get it wrong and then you correct me I'll be like dang it in the same exact inflection every time and right. to a certain extent okay I'm trying to be humorous so I use that inflection but over time what to what I've perceived has happened is it becomes purely reactionary and I have trained myself so well to you know just as your brother is is training his dog to to shake hands i've trained myself so well every time this happens i i say dang it um and, the, and another example of that same thing is after I came back from Brazil, people were asking me like, oh, how was your trip? What what did you do there, et cetera? And the first couple of times I had to think about it and be like, OK, this is what happened and stuff. But once I had formed that narrative, every time someone asked me, it was honestly the same exact answer. I would be like, yeah, I was in this city. I learned this language. I learned that I liked pineapples and I traveled all over Brazil. And <laughs> um. It became it became very eerie to me, where I was like, "Oh wow," you know. Even during interviews and stuff, uh, like a, as you probably experienced during your medical school interviews, at the first one or maybe the first two, when when you have just trained for MMIs and stuff, your how you organize your your thoughts and how how you uh, express yourself is going to be very different from later in the the interview process where I'm sure you you felt that oh I've said this exact same line in this exact same way at least once before you know right and the the second thing that you brought up about humankind kind of you know going through the cyclic nature of you know war and peace and war and peace you know polarization unity um it 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 makes me think about um dystopian novels and utopian novels and how we how we look at our future so a, a good example is 1984 just because that was a an idea that an author had decades before that of how 1984 would be granted fictional um, but if we look at it there, there are so many things exactly like you um, said that have been illustrated time and time again in history and seem to be illustrated in what we see as the future so uh, the, the perfect example of that is like war and peace, uh, not the book, but but the, the, the fact of the matter. And as much as we think, you know, humans are becoming more aware of human rights in general, you know, being kind to one another, um, countries working together to achieve a similar goal. And then we have these multinational organizations like the WHO and the UN. Um, and all of these organizations are there in order to, allow the human race to progress and hopefully lead to a more unified uh, world that benefits all humans, uh, regardless of which corner of earth you live on. But often you see exactly what you're saying. Uh, kind of uh, If you look at other dystopian novels, um, maybe uh, uh, the, the name of the book is not coming to mind, but there's this one where uh, you have a lot of people living in kind of a Uh, decrepit environment and this is the majority of people Um, but then there is a society that is essentially built inside a bubble and within that society everything is perfect you know and what inevitably ends up happening is you know an uprising of the people who do not live in that society and then that society trying to either keep these people down or integrate those people in and then there are like uh, cultural divisions and perhaps racial divisions so many other divisions within that Uh, new integrated society that, again, leads to collapse, uh, maybe leads to reform, etc.
1: It it sounds like you're either talking about Hunger Games or Brave New World. (laughs) Okay, so in, Hunger in games, ways. yeah, so Hunger Games was
0: kind of it was on, on the the edge of my mind. It wasn't brave new world though. It was a book that I read. Um, I believe it was in elementary school or middle school. I'll let you know the name uh, if I think about it. Um, but it starts off with... <laughs> you're this,
1: reading dystopian novels in elementary school. <laughs> I, I believe it
0: was at the end of dude, I always really enjoyed dystopian novels. I think one good like fictional example was the Pendragon series where, It wasn't dystopian in and of itself. It was, you know, talking about a a normal kid and his normal day-to-day life, but he travels to these different planets, which are like absolutely falling apart for some different reason. And there's usually one guy who also travels between these planets and he's the one uh, wreaking havoc. And um, one of those societies is a society that has created, there's one guy in that society who's basically created this video game that is so realistic with all sensation and stuff that people don't actually need to leave the video game and there, there are ways to sustain your body um, outside of the video game. And so people all go to this game center and there used to be, you know, a time limit on how long they could stay, et cetera. But now they just never need to leave. And the owner, the guy who created that um that video game now lives pretty much exclusively within that video game. And because everyone on this planet is living inside this video game, this guy who's wreaking havoc uh, across all these planets goes there and decides. Anyway, I don't know why I'm telling you about this this specific thing, but (laughs) it just seems like every society and every society that we see in the future also has the cyclic nature and never fully learns from our history and our mistakes.
1: Right, right. Uh, I'll I'll just make a quick comment about (laughs) when you're talking about uh, reading dystopian uh, novels in elementary school, the mm-hmm. thing that comes to mind is like a little Gotham going to the library and be like, oh, look, this is a book about an animal farm. And then you go check out the book. Oh, they weren't talking about animals. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I still have not read Animal Farm, but that would have been really funny. <laughs> yeah.
1: Oh, man. Is, is there another period of, of time in in history you would rather have lived compared to the present
0: hmm so i think that that brings a couple things into play so not only time but place right like where in the world would you want to be Um, what would you want your social standing to be Uh, because i feel like if i would say like oh you know I, i would prefer to live in india where they're much more pacific yeah if i was in india before they got their independence, you know, anytime in the 1940s, 1930s, whatever, I'd be experiencing like major oppression there. Okay, then would I want to be on, on the other side of oppression? Well, no, I would feel like a, a really bad person if I was on that, knowing what I know now. Maybe, okay, let's go back to while humans were still migrating across the Bering Strait. Okay, would I want to be a human then? Well, no, because, you know, my chance of surviving past age... Uh, two were probably very, very small. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so I feel like there's no perfect answer to that. I don't think there's a perfect place or perfect time. I know there are a lot of countries that theoretically do a lot of things better than the United States. You know, some of the, the uh, Scandinavian countries have much better laws in terms of environmental policy. Um, there are some countries like the, the United Kingdom, Canada, Brazil that have uh, universal health care. So again, that's another positive do they do other things as well as the, as, as the U.S. does? I, I don't necessarily know. You know, the U.S. has a lot of uh, prominent universities and and a really good education system um, that I'm thankful to, to have been a part of. Um, okay, so then, you know, do I want to go to Switzerland or Luxembourg or, or somewhere that's, like, totally Pacific, you know, in general has good laws, a lot of nature? Well, you know, it could be cool. If I was there during World War II, that would have been very bad, so... Yeah, I, I don't have a good answer to that question, but I'm I'm going to throw it back at you. Do you have any ideas on a perfect place or time or anything like that?
1: Yeah, you know, I, I think it is a, a tricky question because, you know, I, I don't think any one time is perfect, but I I think I would want to stay in the present right now. Our parents were able to immigrate here when we were children, and now, you know, we have been able to make the most of this land of opportunity to pursue our educational pursuits and to pursue medicine. And I mean, my dad was born in a village in India, you know, he had very different constraints about, uh, initially what, uh, what he could do with his life, given Mm -hmm. the financial standing that their family was given his responsibility to his siblings, given, uh, kind of just where he was in the world you know but Mm -hmm. but his his sacrifice to to bring us over here to start uh a new life in in this new place has has led to my brother and i having very um so far fulfilling lives in many ways
0: right and i think when you were talking about like comparing us living right now compared to you know your father living in, in a village in india i think the biggest thing that i'm thankful for is our, our parents, you know, when, when they migrated to uh, all the different countries that they did and eventually coming to the U.S., their sole goal is, you know, to Provide for their family, and you know, provide opportunities for their children. And our main goal is exploring what we are curious about, what really piques our interest, what what drives us. You know, we have motivation out of passion as opposed to being motivated to work out of necessity. And I think that that is a huge, huge luxury that we have been provided by uh, essentially our parents, who who never thought about you know motivation or passion or anything like that. And I think at the end of the day, the the, the best the best way that that manifests is we see all of these problems in the world but thankfully we have the um, the education and uh, hopefully we have the open-mindedness to to tackle some of these problems you know for for me I, I'm, I'm not going to talk about like food deserts and that sort of inequality or um, some people call it the food apartheid you yourself you know you you have your own desire you know how can I connect with other people through the, uh, profession of medicine and improve their life and improve their ability to to connect with others um, if I remember from your your personal statement properly um, so it's it's so cool <laughs> that that we've been given this opportunity that you know previous generations did not necessarily have and honestly if I think about it uh, as as long as humans have been around as long as my bloodline goes upwards, no one has really had that ability you know my my parents worked for um, for sustenance and in order to provide for the children that's what that was the story for my grandparents none of them you know lived a life of luxury you know they lived on a they owned a farm or something like that in in India um, you know one of them was a lawyer but again he was doing it for his his, his my, that was my grandfather and he was doing that for the the sake of his kids and you keep going up from there you know people have never really worked out of passion and out of desire and drive to do something particular so it's super cool that we live in this time specifically for that reason you know
1: yeah absolutely man absolutely i'm with you on that i i I had a comment on 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 one thing that you had mentioned you know animals are ignorant of their own complexity and to an extent humans are as well Mm -hmm. right and um it made me think of this talk that i had listened to where it was a i believe a nobel prize winning physicist who was giving a lecture and he had started off that lecture saying something along the lines of can anyone here prove to me that the earth revolves around the sun rather than the other way around Hmm. and then if you think about that like i mean i can't prove that no one in that room was able to prove that and then the next comment that the person made that the Nobel laureate was so what you're doing right now is you're distrusting that someone who has done the work is correct, right. and that because of that, that becomes fact, even though you don't really know for yourself whether whether that is a fact or not, right. you know. And I, I thought that was really interesting because I think it's sometimes in medicine I have a a similar sort of thinking about uh, about how these processes actually work. Mm-hmm. Because there is a certain mysticism and wonder that I think is attached to how these organisms within ourselves are are working in such a sophisticated way, and you know we learn about these receptors, we learn about these enzymes, we learn about this coordinated action to do these complex things in a a millisecond, and uh, you know I can memorize all of that in my head, and I can regurgitate that on an exam, but then there's a question do i really like where's the proof wh- wh- where do i see that actually happening like what is the evidence in real life that i can see with my own hands and with my own eyes that that make me that makes me believe that what i'm learning right now is actually true rather than some abstract uh, idea that could might as well be a form of religion mm-hmm. you know and i think one thing I I think we're getting into the point of medicine where we are, where things are becoming less abstract and are becoming very much real. Mm. And what I mean by that is, for example, when we were in Palm learning about the uh, fundoscopic exam, Mm -hmm. we had, this was during the same time we were learning neuro. Mm -hmm. And we learned about the parasympathetic system and the sympathetic system. And like we t- mentioned today about the dilation of the pupil and the constriction of the pupil. And then the ophthalmologist in the room, he dilated everyone's pupil by putting, it was something, I think like either atropine or like some other, or something? May, may, maybe something like that. But, but basically um, what the drug was supposed to do was it was supposed to um, activate the sympathetic system so that you uh or inhibit the parasympathetic system so that you dilated your pupils right Hmm. and there was something about like okay we learned this this makes sense to me on a cognitive level Mm -hmm. but then to see this person put these drops onto everyone's eyes and then to see everyone's eyes actually dilate Mm -hmm. that there was an element of whoa this is this is real this is legitimate this is a (laughs) This is a, a real like this isn't just some made-up thing that we, we keep talking about. These are, are real things that have real consequences. And I, I felt the same way when I took that physiology lab course in undergrad, where we would do similar things with a real beating heart, you know, mm-hmm. for a for a frog that was brain dead. But if we if we put you know epinephrine on this heart, then it will contract with a stronger uh, contraction force and if we put adenosine on this heart it will decrease the heart rate and seeing that in action seeing that you know on a molecular level molecular level what's happening here is this molecule is going and binding to this receptor and then causing this cascade of molecular events that then eventually leads to an increase or decrease in heart rate seeing that in real life mm-hmm. Rather than something that is abstract and textbook, was something that, that just felt really cool, and I think it's something that now, where we're slowly leaning towards uh, doing the more practical things of medicine. I mean, like next year, we'll be doing more procedural things. You know, learning how to put a nasogastric tube, um, doing more suturing, and 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 uh, understanding. Uh, some more drug pharmacology and how that interacts with these different processes to see the actual action of of the things that we do uh, where we intervene in a direct way mm-hmm. I think makes it hit a lot closer to home as something that is very much real
0: I think that's like exactly the reason why
1: I enjoyed physics in
0: high school where it was, The only science where, I mean, one, my physics teacher was amazing, but outside of that, it was the one science where the physics teacher would stand up in front of the class and he's like, okay, so we talked about, you know, uh, pendulums yesterday. Let me show you this pendulum. Let me show you that theory, you know, the the length of the string and stuff in action. And the fact that everything in physics is something that you can experience, at least in mechanics, something you can experience in day-to-day life you know, when you push on a door, you know, if you push closer to the end, you have more torque, so it's easier to push. That's what like kind of blew my mind. And that's that's kind of why I appreciate it. And it's interesting that you bring this up with respect to medicine, because I think there's so many things in science and research that, as you said, we have to take for granted. Um, and even if you think about it, like, after a certain point we agree like okay our our all of our bodily processes are mediated by cells cells are these little bags that are bound by cell membranes what are cell membranes well they are these phospholipid bilayers oh what is phosphorus oh it's this uh you know atom on the periodic table that we have determined have has this many electrons and, and stuff like that but we kind of take all of that for granted every time we think of this whole thing because we're comfortable in our knowledge of okay we know what phosphorus is and that sort of stuff but then at the core of that, we don't actually really know, like at least I don't really have a good understanding of how um, atoms and and quarks and all of the, the subatomic particles, how, how they work, you know? And so I think the one part of medicine that drew me closer to the conclusion that you're bringing up now is uh, histology, weirdly enough. And histology is, is not everyone's favorite subject, but I just thought it was so cool to finally see with your own eyes underneath this microscope, that exact tissue that you've been talking about for weeks, you know, whether it be uh, mm. liver tissue or the, the example uh, I brought up with emphysema earlier today, like you can see the alveoli in a healthy tissue. And then under like with histology under the microscope, you can see that microstructure of alveoli being destroyed and the the histology looks so different. And it's so cool to be able to see those diseases uh, in action, but like and seeing those cells, seeing the, these things that you've been studying with with some uh, to some extent in abstraction, you know.
1: Yeah, yeah. Because I feel like before that, what is holding you to that what what seems to be knowledge is is faith that that, that is what it is real, exactly, right? Yeah. But then, but then when you see it with your own eyes, you lose the the semblance of skepticism that may have come into your mind of is this really real uh is this is what we're learning actually the truth Mm -hmm. but i think being able to see it and experience that is something that is unique in some of these domains and is very almost empowering to to have some assurance on what that truth is
0: i think that in in all aspects of medicine i think it's our curiosity that really lets us uh, seek out that truth because you know yesterday we were talking about uh, different uh, bacterias that can cause lung diseases and, and you mentioned like Klebsiella and I was like oh I've, I've I've learned a little about Klebsiella but I want to know more about that and then today when you asked me about like the adrenal cortex I was like oh yeah I need to talk about the, the three zones of it and that kind of stuff and this is th- these are things that are outside of the realm of, of what we're, we're studying at that point in time but I think it's our curiosity that's like okay I I don't know what is, this is. I don't want to take it for granted. So let me actually dive into it and really understand it to a point where I no longer have to place my faith in it. And I can actually, uh, I can actually be comfortable knowing it, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think there's something specific about about medicine where, you know, now this knowledge is becoming real in the sense that we are seeing it in real life and we're seeing how it acts. Mm-hmm. But then, there is also this utility that comes with that knowledge where now that we see that this is how this works and we, we see with our own eyes that we can manipulate uh, an outcome based on an understanding of a mechanism, mm-hmm. uh, then that empowers us to be able to battle disease and try to prolong health by... by uh kind of wielding this new sword against uh against the unknown in general. You
0: know? Yeah, that's kind of what you were able to experience through physiology lab. And now from now on, I, I'm sure that you've experienced this as well, but it's like whenever I think uh aspirin or something like that, I no longer think, okay someone's going to take aspirin their inflammation is going to go down i'm going to think okay cyclooxygenase i'm going to think okay what is cyclooxygenase's role in blood clotting right how does it cause its blood thinning effect like there are all of these things that are you know inherently scientific and inherently uh kind of tied to my curiosities in that subject and all the things that we've learned in that subject that we no longer take it for granted and we We, at a molecular basis, understand how that medication works, why this therapy works, why this surgery works. That's just so cool.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, man. 100%.
0: Cool. Well, uh, shall we end it there?
1: Yeah, dude. I think that is a... That is a good place to wrap it up.
0: Man, as always, what an interesting path this, uh, this, yeah, where stick. did we start? We started
1: with we started the with asymmetry, anatomy. no, the symmetry of, of anatomy yeah. of upper extremity, lower extremity. And then, you know, and uh, going
0: from symmetry to asymmetry and then homology to other organisms, then dystopia.
1: <laughs> Quite the journey as always, as always.
0: Well, it it was a pleasure speaking with you, Samson, and thank you to everyone and our future selves for listening, and we
1: will catch you in uh, the next episode. See you soon.